You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. This episode of HEDEX, we talk with Executive Chair CEO Lloyd Lazaro, who is an expert in executive search and understanding what big organizations are looking for in terms of talent. Hi, Martin. Hey there, Carl. That's great that you've you've found Lloyd for an interview this week. I think getting some some really 360-degree view of all of the perspectives on the higher education experience is really important right now, and it's been great to have students and leaders of our organizations and, and some of the tech startups that are starting to be in this in this space. But getting a voice from employers of graduates, and, and in Lloyd's case, through, through a search consultant, the facilitator of an employer's needs, is a really important insight into the higher education experience. And it's an interesting perspective because Lloyd, is forever having conversations with decision makers about why they are making certain decisions for talent. And so it's not just a, a success profile that was once written on a, a piece of paper or in a, an HR document. He's speaking with CEOs and senior leaders about what it is that the, the organization needs, particularly through this changing time. And so the interview, and as you'll see shortly, I ask him a variety of questions around have things changed in terms of what big organizations are, are looking for? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I imagine that um, given the way you've described his background and the nature of his role, he'd, he'd be a perfect opportunity for us to get a snapshot shot in this moment of time of, of how things have changed. I, I guess it would be interesting to hold that up against, you know, the other insights that we have from from what's being written about in this area of, of how this is going to continue to un, unfold in the future. I, th- I think if you're in a university and trying to create a great student experience, you need to know what hirers are thinking now. But you'll also need to, to to try and anticipate how that might continue to evolve from the trajectory to date into the future. Absolutely. Why don't we jump straight into it? Yeah, great. I'd, I'd be really interested to, to hear what Lloyd's got to say. So today I'm joined by Lloyd Lazaro, who's the CEO of the Executive Chair. Now, Lloyd has over two decades experience in high-level executive search for some of Australia's largest companies, also working overseas in terms of um, securing appropriate leadership for organisations across many, many industries. Welcome, Lloyd. Carl, pleasure. Pleasure to be here with you. So, Lloyd, we're, you know a little bit about HeadX. I know you've been listening to some of the other episodes and uh, aware that um, you know we get a lot of perspectives from within the industry. We've got a couple of student views now about what the experience has been like, um, particularly uh, more recently, one in um, Victoria, one in Queensland. For you, you know, you're in the uh, you and I've known each other for a long time. Worked across some some very interesting projects across different industries. And I know that you're very in touch with what C-suite and boards are interested in terms of talent and the requirement of senior executives in organizations. So I'm very interested to know through this process whether there's been a, a shift, I suppose, in um, the requirements and the needs from boards and executive teams um, from talent. You know, people coming out of be it graduates or a bit um, you know, more senior talent. Just generally, do you want to share any of your sort of more general observations of employer needs through um, through COVID? Yeah, thanks, Carl. I think um, if I start at the high level, more so the senior and mid-executive level, um, there is a greater emphasis on some of the softer skills of, um, of leaders that organisations are heightening their process and their um, 
the, the manner by which they appoint um, leaders. And when I talk about softer skills, I'm talking about more um, the way in which um, their values uh, guide their decision-making, the principles by which they lead. Um, and talking more about attitudes and behaviours as well. So I think in the current environment uh, where organisations, in the main, those industries that have been negatively impacted by COVID and they've had to reduce their operating footprint um, accordingly, um, there's a heightened requirement to ensure that there's a business that's sustainable beyond COVID. Um, equally so, if you look at the flip side, organisations that have grown through the pandemic, and when I talk about um, industries, that's probably more so in the in the in the main um, healthcare, uh, some of the fintechs, uh, banking and finance, um, and some of the the pure player online providers. Certainly from a, a retailing perspective, uh, once again, it brings some greater rigor around uh, ensuring that they have the right um, capability um, and the right behaviours and attitudes to that's going to guide um, robust growth. Um, in an environment, but also when I think about what Rod Sint has said from the ACCC, it's ensuring that most of the mid to small businesses are protected through this journey. So we're not, we're not we're moving into a, an environment where competition is reduced significantly. I think it bodes negatively for the consumers as a result of that, but ensuring that uh, we have some longevity going through this. So attitudes, behaviours at both ends of the spectrum, critically important. So you mentioned a variety of industries. Is there any industry in particular that you've noticed have got a you know change, a dramatic change, or a more higher, greater emphasis on uh, a different skill set from uh, from another. Um, industries that are evolving rapidly. Um, I think when you look at uh, the university sector, for, for instance, um, maybe if I use one example, Chimin Duran Singer, who was appointed into the role of uh, chief marketing officer slash digital slash uh, student engagement, probably about two or three years ago at RMIT. Um, at that point in time, the university's vision was to become or move rapidly towards becoming a, a digital uh, or provide a very robust digital offering, uh, an online offering. And so that's been accelerated. Um, when you look at, I think it's about 17,000 people that have lost their jobs within the university sector alone uh, during the COVID pandemic. Those universities, universities have had to address uh, the way in which they engage with students whilst maintaining uh, the same level of, or hopefully try to maintain the same level of, of revenue coming through. Uh, so it's been a challenging time for the university space equally. So if I look at some of the healthcare providers, uh, they've done exceptionally well through this time, uh, be that the insurers or those that are um, on the front line in developing vaccines um, for uh, COVID and their variants. Where And then you look at the, the tentacles that feed off that from a pharmaceutical healthcare space, there's a significant skill set that's been required, be that more technically. And so that probably plays into more the junior uh, and high potentials that are probably just about to complete their tertiary qualifications and rolling into industry uh, to have that expertise academically, but also to be able to have the, the right uh, core competencies or certainly have the, the framework of core competencies that would align really well into some of those industries that are growing rapidly. And so just talking about uh, getting talent into organisations, something that has been bandied around almost as a motherhood statement for many years is, you know, culture fit. Are you the right culture fit? It's one of the first things people say if, if they're having a problem with a new hire. I think there's a lot more rigour and um, frameworks around what organisational culture is at the moment and also what 
cult, what culture fit looks like. Um, you know, you're seeing more of more of a discussion with your clients uh, in terms of culture fit based on the changing environment and the need for resilience, for instance. Yeah, one of the models that I've used in processes I've, that I continue to run, Carl, is uh, competency modelling. And competency modelling will focus on some of those um, harder, more uh, testable uh, critical competencies that the organisation requires, the role certainly requires. And if it's in line with succession planning as well, what does the capability of that individual look like moving forward? But um, part of that whole framework has always been a strong cultural alignment, um, don't get me wrong, but I think there's a far more acute emphasis on that um, through the pandemic and certainly moving forward. I think that's probably been driven more so, Carl, on workforces that are, have been uh, dispersed to work remotely. Um, and so that 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 is an incredibly challenging lens to be able to decide upon the very best talent when you probably haven't had the ability to sit down with that individual face-to-face uh, prior to making the appointment. And so trust trust in their capability, trust in their softer skill sets, um, and trust that they've got the cultural DNA that aligns with their organisation um, is uncompromising. So yes, there's a, a far more of an acute lens on, on culture fit. One of the things I always found interesting is uh, that Graduates would come out of university and be, uh, you know, very excited about a new role they might pick up as, as their first real job, um, without any help, any training, any sort of development around what it means to be part of a large organisation. Having conversations with uh, senior leaders, how to manage up, down, sideways, um, what politics might look like, how to prepare for that, how to actually fit into the organisation so you give yourself a chance of succeeding. And we really only hear about this more often than not when it's around organ rejection. You know, someone didn't make it or they didn't really last in that organisation because they didn't fit with the culture. What chance have they got to fit with a culture going through COVID that's going to be high pressure for a lot of organisations in high productivity, high collaboration, innovation at a rate that they've never had to operate it before. New hire goes in, has had no real preparedness, no preparation around what uh, what it looks like to be part of any organisation, let alone something like that. Is that something that you see as well or am I just um, enjoying my own theory? <laughs> no, that, that's, uh, that's a truism, Carl. I think, I think you need to... I think we all need to understand it for what it is. So if we look at the, the graduate students coming out of the, their, having completed their tertiary qualification, we can't, we can't accelerate experience for them. What they've experienced within the university context is just that. Um, we can't magnify it. We can't suggest it to be different. Um, I think that the critical piece here is that leaders need to provide the very best air cover for emerging talent out of universities into organizations. And what, what I mean by that, all of those elements that you mentioned, um, having the ability to manage up, manage down, manage sideways, the ability to um, navigate your way through the politics, and that does, does exist in organizations. The ability to operate remotely, and we've seen that prolifically um, on a global level. I think it's more uh, incumbent on leaders to be able to read the play far more effectively and provide an incredible amount of air cover because ultimately you're at um, you're at the mercy of losing the very best emerging talent in market if you fail to do so. And you disenfranchise um, people that have had a passion, having learnt or, or gone through the various case studies uh, academically with a view to 
make a difference within the organizations once given the opportunity, uh, you disenfranchise them relatively quickly and you, you lose um, talent and talent capability moving forward. So let me wind this back a little bit to you know, our listeners. Uh, we've got you know, several thousand listeners from the higher education sector listen to HeadX. And, and many of them are in charge of making decisions around brand positioning and the way that their organization shows up for, uh, for students. You know, why choose them? This is one of the big questions. Why choose them? And they go to market and talk about, you know, we are the university for the real world or we live in your world or we're, what's next? And, you know, the, the sentiment's quite similar in some part, which is, you know, we prepare you to succeed in the future and whatever the articulation is that's the sentiment um i i, I think for me i'd love to know from your side of the fence uh do, do you actually get candidates do you get people out of university i know you obviously operate at a level a little bit higher than this but you've been in the industry a long time is there a is there a conceptual void between those that come out feeling they've gone to a university that's promised to prepare them to be successful in the future, but yet they've come out and there's a little bit of a gap. There's a realization that I'm not actually all that prepared to, um, to succeed in this, in this area. And in fact, the university could have done something different to help me. There's probably examples of both, Carl. I think there's examples where students come out of university and they're, they're well prepared uh, because the environment in which they've sat has has afforded them opportunities to understand what the push-pull, the cut-and-thrust of business will look like. And so they've been well-prepared. And so I think it's quite subjective around their lecturers that they would have engaged with at that point in time. I'm, I remember when I um, c completed my business, Bachelor of Business and Marketing, um, you know, I had some really good practical lecturers uh, that provided anecdotal examples of businesses and not so much business in terms of what the eventual outcome, commercial outcome might have been or the the brand reputational um, delivery models might have been, but more so about the leaders in those organizations and how those organizations were led by those leaders. So I think on the one hand, yes, um, there are some students that come out really well equipped and have um, their eyes wide open to what the corporate market will look like. And there are others that... Um, just haven't had that exposure. Um, equally so, there are some students that have the emotional intelligence to be able to absorb and understand what the dynamics will look like within organizations when they move in there, and there are others that, that, that just don't. And hence the reason why, to my point previously, leaders need to be more cognizantly aware of the fact that they do need to provide that air cover. They will have highly capable students coming out and will be able, be able to relatively assimilate well into organizations. And there are others that are going to need some support. Um, so it goes back to that point. I think that also speaks to the idea that the closer a university is to industry and the more exposure they get, be it from adjunct lecturers or guest lecturers or, you know, um, uh, collaborative hack days or placement within industry and you know, they're more they're better positioned to be able to cope with it when they move in let, let me take it to another That's question right. the um this idea that you know in the in the 80s we sort of had uh the big sandstone universities being very dominant in fact 80s 90s and beyond um, and that's looked to many, to many, and for many, that's still the case uh, with qualifications like you know MBAs being held up very highly for for employers. Is there any change now in the way that the world is between experience versus qualifications? Um, I'm mindful of a quote that I saw a little while ago, Carl, that said, uh, "Don't be afraid to start over. You're not starting from scratch. You're starting from experience." So, uh, what I mean by that? Well. There are some individuals, and once again, it's, it's subjective to the organization and probably more symptomatic to the industry as well. There are some that are, it's, it's, it's a key requirement for you to have an MBA. 
uh, to have a competitive advantage. And in the current uh, candidate-driven market, it comes down to those elements. Um, there are some industries where it's not as critically important to have an MBA, but certainly a postgraduate or an undergraduate qualification is, is, is a key consideration. I think what, what, what I've experienced, Carl, over the journey is that leaders are looking for um, examples and tertiary qualifications is one key metric whereby they, they understand and gives them an insight into how a particular individual thinks critically. And I think tertiary qualifications and that whole journey and that process provides you with that opportunity to think more critically. And it, there's, there's almost a, a requirement from lecturers and the assessment for you to be able to think outside what might be fundamentally the, the answer that's sitting in front of you. Um, so I think, I think any, my experience has been anyone with a tertiary qualification, and as you head further in more senior assignments, uh, an MBA is, is viewed very prominently. Um, equally so, I will say I've spent some time to conduct a compare and contrast between what we experienced uh, here in Australia uh, from, a, from a corporate perspective between the GFC and what we've experienced during COVID. There, there are similarities um, on both of those uh, experiences that we've had. Probably one has been the importance of leaders uh, placing an emphasis on retaining um, their high caliber, their high caliber talent, and their high potentials. That would be one. Uh, the other is, if as we've seen, a decimation in many sectors where organisations have had to reconfigure their operating footprint, and therefore people have lost their jobs, unfortunately, as a result of that. Those that can do so have taken the time to go and complete their MBAs. So if they have done an undergraduate um, or even a postgraduate. Um, they've found this time, as we did during the GFC, for people to take the time out to go and complete their MBAs. Because I think there, there, is an, an, there is an importance on the MBA, once again, symptomatic of the industry. Mm. I suppose that was my last last question was, you know, you have a network where you might place a chief something officer that's there for five years, and then five years later, <clears throat> you're back in touch and you're helping them find their next role. Um, you know, that network that you've got, which would be hundreds of people uh, in this, this era where yeah, some of them have self-selected out for change, some of them have been unfortunately impacted by COVID and had to take time out. Were you saying that the general um, activity that they're engaged in is education as opposed to, you know, picking up a guitar or you know, moving the family to, to Byron Bay or starting an axolotl farm or whatever it is that they, uh, is there, piques their interest? Axolotl farm. There's something a little bit different. Good, good question, Carl. And I think I think leaders that take their career seriously um, and have had that mapped out over the journey, if they if they if that has been disrupted by COVID, and if they have been in a position where they uh, find themselves not in a role, then they have taken steps to continue to ensure that they keep their minds sharp and keep their networks healthy. Um, they've also Pure, purely through circumstance, have also seen the op seized the opportunity to be able to potentially pivot their career, uh, where transferability of competence can be taken across industries, and there may be opportunities that they otherwise would not have had to to make the change in those industries and are doing exceptionally well. So, I think those that have, just to answer your question, either they've taken the opportunity to, to move into something completely different, where they conduct their own due diligence based on industries that are either growing or emerging and see, seize that opportunity and move in that space, or they've taken some time out, completed their MBA, 
um, and position themselves exceptionally well to be in a position to take on the next challenge in their career journey that inspires and motivates them. So one final question, Lloyd. Um, look, this is a really interesting one. So you're dealing with senior leadership teams making uh, senior highs all the time. Is there any university, I know you work from Melbourne, but you also work nationally and internationally. Is there a list of you know preferred universities? Do the clients say to you, look, we want to find a candidate and ideally they're going to come out of X, Y, and Z university? If so, which are, which are they and why? Uh, the short answer is no. Um, there's no one leader that I've come across that has been prescriptive around the type of university that they want to see um, emerging leaders coming out. They obviously uh, have a preference of certain types of universities. I think, at, to your point, universities that were the sandstone universities of the 80s and 90s have evolved significantly as we move towards digitizing offerings to students moving forward. But uh, in the main, there's no one uh, or a list of universities that leaders tend to have a bias towards ensuring they get talent out of those universities. Thanks so much for joining me, Lloyd. That's Lloyd Lazaro from the Executive Chair. Cheers. Pleasure, Carl. So, Martin, what do you think? Well, there's some real pearls in in, in, in that particular interview, Carl. I mean, um, the question that you were asking Lloyd there about whether he could see a handful of universities that were streets apart in the views of employer employers and that not only could he not see that, but he didn't think it was relevant, but he believed that all universities are, are the same. That's a view from outside the sector that's so different from what so many people in the sector think. There's such a great understanding and prestige associated with reputation and history that we believe that there's a natural pecking order and a natural order of things in our universities and that everyone outside of, of our world sees it like that. That's not how employers are seeing it. It's very clear when it gets to the senior leadership level from that interview. Yeah, I think it's it's similar with most most uh, brands, actually, that they get so caught up with their own their own customer base and their own audience that they think they over-index, I think it's more important than it is. Uh, I'm very aware from the work that we're doing around the um, – prioritization and the key drivers behind decision making for universities both from parents and career gu- career guidance uh, counselors of which we'll have on the program shortly but like uh, as Lloyd said there there doesn't seem to be too much of a, a consideration at all around which university you went to as long as you have a particular qualification yeah well I mean it's been fascinating with the uh, guests that we've had in recent episodes and that you know how how widely is it known in the sector and beyond the sector, for instance, that Charles Sturt University has the most employable graduates or that University of Southern Queensland has the highest graduate pay of all of our 39 universities. And even that Federation University has the top scores in those two measures of all universities in Victoria. This is completely contrary to the view of there being a natural order of things, of the the Sandstones not only having the highest research reputation, but probably the best place to send your kids or if you are a, a, stu- a prospective student yourself make your own choices about where to study it's not borne out by the data of of every university has an opportunity to play in this space it's mind-boggling it's i had no idea i would have thought and assumed i suppose as many people would that the in melbourne as you say that the monash and the melbourne universities would be have the highest employability and the remuneration would be you know um, in line with that so, so I, I, I think there's two things then that come out of that, that that were really prominent in that Lloyd interview. That He also went on to say that the, the knowledge within a degree in itself is not the most important thing to getting a job in, in leadership. It, 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 he seemed to suggest, and my interpretation of it that was that having a university degree is still important, 
whether it will remain to be, to, to be the case is, is open for question, I believe. But it's important to get on a short list. And, and after that, it perhaps doesn't matter. It's going to be, and he gave great emphasis to it, that the, the social skills and the soft skills will be the things that then once you're on the short, sh the short list with your passport of a university degree, we won't, don't care from it where, where it's from. It's what you can do that, can, could, that, that will count, not where you studied. Mm. And the culture component and the culture fit element is an absolute minefield for any new employee in any organization. So the preparation for that doesn't exist. It's a fascinating world that you, we don't have any, whether it be at universities or any sort of out of university, any, any, any out of ed, formal educational context. There's no course you can do that it helps prepare you for this is what's likely to happen in a 35,000 person organization where you're entering at a particular rung. Um, and so the decisions being made, we all like to think that they're made on the virtue and the value of your contribution, but we know that there's a soft skill component to that, which is, does, it, does my leader or my manager actually like me? Do I communicate effectively with them? Am I actually demonstrating that I have the right ingredients from my personality, character, the way they approach a, a task to be respected enough so that they then value what it is that I'm saying before you actually say it? So there's a huge soft skill component here within that cultural framework that no one is working with. But so so the, the, this interesting to have heard it so clearly from Lloyd in the interview you did with him there, Carl. I mean, as as you and I have, re have been reflecting upon, there's a lot of a lot of um, work been written about in this area, and, and we came across a, an article from the Harvard Business Review. Indeed, that was part of the research that myself and Michael Roseman of QUT have been looking at in the preparation of our new learning economy book that I've referred to before. The, the, the article in question there about does higher education still prepare people for jobs is also backing up Lloyd's view that s soft skills and social skills are everything. And can you really teach that in a university? I think if, if, if I reflect back on the interviews that we've done between us with the two students, with Ella and Sarah, and also more recently with Chris of GO1, who reflected back on his days as a student, I think in all three cases, those three um, current and former students reflected upon much of the value of a university education was the interaction that they had with different minds in a out-of-classroom and out-of-formal learning setting. That's where some of those soft skills and social skills have been developed, not by being taught. And the big question for me is now we're in 2021, now we've had um, an, you know, a, dr a drive away from, from campuses with a, with a gradual return but in a completely different way. How are universities going to stand apart from other providers of knowledge and professional development in, in developing those soft skills in a way that's going to justify a 50,000 degree ticket price? Mm. And even the way they conduct themselves as a example for students. Uh, you know, we've got uh, we're thick in the thick at the moment of helping traditional business digitise and move into a more digital age. And so there's a couple of uh, one, one particular client that the way that they communicate it's completely uh, reasonable for them to have a conversation and then behind everyone's back have another conversation. And that's um and that actually flies. Not only is that just poor your poor ethics. It's also not great for progress because you're actually throwing sand in the gearbox and moving forward if you've made decisions and then you're you know, behind the scenes sort of starting to unstitch those. So 
any digital organization or any organization that's progressive that is moving quickly doesn't do that. They generally sign up to particular agreements and move forward with it. And any sort of retrospective conversation that investigates why they made the decision or not is essentially a cultural um, crime. You know, that's just not entertained. And yet I've seen the cultures, as we know, so heavily entrenched in large organisations, shifting that is very, very difficult. But I think it's probably the same in universities, that if we're finding universities trying to reinvent themselves and do things differently um, and then set a, set a standard and, and role model things differently for their students, even to the extent of providing education that helps them have soft skills that you know, that will help them fit in a uh, big organisation culturally, there's a long way to go in understanding what's the base state culture at the moment. How do we move forward? What are the attributes of that? What's perpetuating our current culture and the way we communicate into a way that's much more free-flowing and agile? Well, it's, it's sort of picking up on points we've been making over a number of our, our episodes now. I do really think that this is, and there's so many lessons to this, um, and pointing towards this from from Lloyd's interview, this is a really great opportunity for one of our universities to develop a really distinctive position that's relevant to student employability, that can be articulated and differentiated in the marketplace as a brand essence, and can be delivered through a strategy supported by culture. It would make it would need a, a relentless focus on that point of differentiation in the design of courses and in the interaction with industry and in the creation of fantastic student interfaces and in the delivery of student experiences from a st- from a staff complement who fully bought into it now i don't think anyone's doing that at the moment but every single one of our 39 universities has the opportunity to Make a bold step like that, and there's never been a better time to do it than right now. And L- Lloyd's interview illustrates that beautifully. And I think some of the things Lloyd didn't say there is he, he consults to both traditional business and then some of the more um, the larger evolving employers like the tech industry. And when you go into, you know, my experience with tech industry and consultants, and when you go into a, a, a collaborative environment or a collaborative task in the tech industry, there are certain expectations of you culturally and from a soft skills perspective that you basically have to have to survive. It's no longer a, a show up with a piece of paper and I've got a qualification, I can work in a bank or an insurance firm. And look, even those businesses are now moving towards being more tech-like. But the, the speed in which they work and the way that you have to have a, a great handle on the variety of personalities and the challenges that you come your way and the way that you conduct yourself, um, there's no two ways about it anymore. You don't really get a choice. You have to sort of fall in line and and move in this. And it, look, it's not a bad way of operating too. They're very authentic. They celebrate diversity. Um, it's a very sort of pro-social, positive environment. But if you don't know how to conduct yourself in that environment and you're expecting a more um, linear way of investing your time and communication you generally find that you don't succeed so some preparation in that would be incredibly helpful yeah and and look um i think with design of of problem-based learning and project work and industry experiences and internship opportunities and global mobility and industry mobility universities have been chipping away at this and trying to explore this and and really um, throwing a lot of, of, of executive attention and some resources at this for some little while. But how do you return to all of that in 2021 after the sort of year that we had in 2020? Um, I, I think these are huge questions. And to, and to have a, a, a thousand flowers blooming of experiments with that, with the tightness of resources right now, without it being 
bound into some coherent strategy of how we're trying to create some transformational student experiences that can be delivered through culture that align with strategy that present a differentiated brand essence whoa you could throw a lot of resources at this and get it wrong or you could do this in a very deliberate way and make a huge huge change and difference in the marketplace Mm. and as we progress this podcast in particular I've come out of a background where I've had a variety of companies, one of them called Brand Behaviour, where we'd run a variety of diagnostics and assess um, you know, optimal behaviour and then poor behaviour and then commentate on that. I think we're, we're going to start moving into a situation where we've given everyone the benefit of the doubt to be able to reassemble their resources and position themselves through a pandemic. But it doesn't really help anyone for, uh, for there to be a vanilla sort of approach to the way everything's happening. I'm, I'm keen to start identifying the universities that are standing up and doing things differently and succeeding and also those that are struggling and making poor decisions, not to throw stones at them, but to help the industry itself recognise that it's not one particular pace that's going to succeed here. Every university has to have a bespoke, unique value proposition and speak to that. And if we don't see that, I think we should really start calling that out because that's going to be an enormous failing and they won't be able to continue to exist unless they do that. Yeah. Well, I'm absolutely sure that's right. I mean, I, I wonder if we were to ask Lloyd or, or Lloyd's successors in five or ten years' time, are there some universities that stand out? I don't, I, I don't think we will then find answers of, yes, this one that's 100 years old and had a great research reputation is the one we hire our graduates from. My sense of where Lloyd and Lloyd's community is heading is that we'll get even more sophistication in understanding what the skills and the qualities are of graduates in the workplace and get visibility of information about that. And the university that does create an extraordinary student experience that develops soft skills better than other universities through the creativity and innovation they unveil in the next year or two, I think we'll start to be able to point towards data that says that, yes, they're the place that we do want to hire from. And in in all markets, consumers, customers and and businesses are are surfacing greater clarity and visibility and data on on performance and on reviews. We, we, We live in a world of digital platforms allowing us to like, comment on and review and rate just about anything and everything. You know, at the moment, you can probably find all this data if you know how to navigate your way around a quilt web website buried somewhere in a federal department of education's, um, you know, public information. But if if parents and future students and employers that are trying to do things in a much more, um, you know, prominent and, and, and easily accessible way, I think the world of, of digital platforms is going to change where we will know where you can get the best student experience in the future and, and develop your, your social skills. And that will lead to people making choices about certain universities. Who's going to, who's going to take advantage of that opportunity? Great question. That's all we have time for on this episode of HeadX. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.